Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. As the 2022 U.S. midterm elections draw closer, our conversation today offers a look into potential outcomes, the policy items in focus of voters, as well as possible investment implications of the results to be mindful of. Joining us today for the conversation, glad to welcome back Tom McLaughlin, head of Fixed Income Americas with the UBS Chief Investment office. Tom, great to be with you as always. Thank you for dropping by and spending some time with our listeners and clients. Good morning, Dan. I'm really happy to be here with you. So, Tom, looking at the polls as they stand today, I know we are in the early days of September. From your vantage point, how are the midterm elections shaping up and what is CIO's view on the likely outcome in November? Yeah, you know, it's been a pretty unusual campaign season. Uh, And as we've discussed in the past, Dan, midterm elections always pose a challenge for the political party of the incumbent president, uh, whether that president happens to be a Republican or a Democrat. Um, it's, we, we've seen the historical pattern repeated over years where the president's party has only gained seats in the House of Representatives very rarely, only three times in the past century, as a matter of fact. Senators in the same party as the president also face an uphill climb, but generally not to the same degree as House members. So when you look back in history, uh, 1934, 1998, 2002, those were the only three instances over the course of 100 years where in a midterm election, we actually saw the incumbent president's party gain seats in the House. So you know, if you had asked me three weeks ago whether the historical precedent would hold again, I would have said yes. But I think three things have altered the landscape a bit and improved the chances of Democrats retaining control of the Senate and Republicans winning control of the House, but with a smaller majority than would have been expected three months ago. So first, uh, primary voters uh, in Republican primaries have chosen a few inexperienced candidates for the Senate. And those campaigns have been struggling, uh, and the Democratic candidates have actually polled better than expected. Second, the Supreme Court ruling in the Dobbs decision, which eliminated federal constitutional protection for abortion, appears to have motivated the Democratic base and also increased the turnout of unaffiliated voters in primaries that were held after that decision was announced, uh, which was the third week of June. And you can actually uh, look at the data and see that the enthusiasm gap, which is a very common occurrence where uh, adherents or supporters of the president, the president's party, tend not to come out in a midterm election, uh, either because they may have been disappointed with with the president's performance or simply because it's not as high profile as a presidential election, right? There could be any number of reasons. But in this cycle with President Biden in office, we would have expected Democrats not to have uh, a real motivation to come to the polls. And that's that's what would have happened in most midterm elections. But in this case, after the Dobbs decision, we actually saw more Democrats coming out to the polls and actually more unaffiliated voters, which is probably the more interesting characteristic. Um, and that is uh, Uh, basically lifted Democratic hopes as well. The third issue, after 18 months of internal disagreements, there were two bills passed last month that appear to have uh, dampened some of the criticism of the Democratic management of Congress. That was the Bipartisan Ships and Science Act and the party line vote for the Inflation Reduction Act. So anyway, the net effect is a closer election in November that Democrats should have had a right to expect. Uh, 
Uh, we now place a 60% probability of a divided Congress in January with Democrats holding a narrow majority in the Senate and the GOP holding a relatively narrow majority in the House. Well, it is interesting, Tom, how quickly the tide seems to have turned a bit in consideration of those developments you shared with us. Of course, with two months to go, anything can happen. I do want to turn to legislation for a few moments. I recall recently Congress finally passed the Build Back Better Budget Reconciliation Bill, branded, however, as the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, in terms of policy coming down the pike, Tom, what might we expect to see out of Washington post the midterm elections in November? Right. You know, it's a, it's a running joke in Washington, or was a running joke in Washington, that the Build Back Better Reconciliation Bill um, was being renamed Build Back Later, Build Back Never. Um, so it's not that surprising that Senator Schumer changed the name uh, to the Inflation Reduction Act, which, by the way, is a bit of a misnomer. There isn't really much in the bill to reduce inflation to any appreciable degree. But it, it was a watershed event in terms of energy and health care. It provides incentives for energy efficiency, tax credits for clean vehicles, and a whole host of other incentives. Uh, also provides subsidies for state-sponsored health care plans and, and allows Medicare to negotiate bug, uh, drug prices. I mention that only because a divided Congress is unlikely to pursue further legislation related to health care and climate change in the next Congress. Um, the, they basically, uh, by passing the Inflation Reduction Act with all those provisions I just mentioned, um, they put themselves in a position where in a divided Congress, you're just not going to get a whole lot of traction on issues related to most issues related to health care or climate change. Now, the GOP might take a run at incremental legislation in the House on traditional energy projects, but it faces an uphill climb in the Senate. We do anticipate bipartisan support in the next Congress for Defense Department appropriations. The federal uh, fiscal year begins on October 1st. We're likely to have a continuing resolution going into the fiscal year. Um, the Defense Department appropriations might take either uh, until December in a lame duck conference or into the first quarter of next year. But both parties, in the wake of the Russia invasion of Ukraine, increased tension in the bilateral relationship with China, are are going to basically uh, provide support for Defense Department appropriations, which, from from the perspective of industrial companies, is a positive. Uh, Congress, this is a big issue. Also, Congress must pass a major agricultural bill in the latter half of, by the latter half of 23. This type of legislation only happens once every five years. And it tends to result in some really unusual bedfellows in terms of people crossing party lines. Um, and so this one, uh, you end up, it can't be done through reconciliation. It's just too large. It's too expensive. Um, but you can expect some controversy over uh, farm subsidies and nutrition programs, um, which is where the two political parties will kind of line up. But as I said, you'll, you'll see some people crossing over in order to move this legislation in the third quarter of 23. Um, it's a must-pass piece of legislation. There's also some evidence um, that um, a change in the treatment of R&D expenses in the corporate tax code will come up for discussion again. The 2017 Tax Codes and Jobs Act provided for a five-year amortization of such expenses. The uh, Inflation Reduction Act did... Um, do, it did make some changes relating to R&D, but it didn't necessarily uh, affect the largest companies. And, and so for defense contractors, for big industrial companies, uh, amortizing research and development over a shorter time period is important. And I think that's something that will get a lot of attention next year. Last but not least, 
is the prospect of another showdown over the dead limit. Uh, we expect the dead limit to get hit sometime around September 1st, although that's kind of a very loose deadline at this point. Um, when it happens, a divided Congress probably doesn't help in in terms of having members of the House and members of the Senate kind of bickering a bit over what concessions they may demand of the Biden administration before raising the dead limit. So that deadline becomes something of a nail-biter, and that's probably um, something we're going to be talking a lot about next summer. Well, the clarity, the color around the Inflation Reduction Act, very helpful, as is a look at some potential legislative points of interest to come in the months ahead. So thank you for that, Tom. Turning maybe to the investment implications for a few moments of the midterm elections, how do you expect, Tom, the election results to impact markets, including any specific sectors that could be impacted the most, depending on how these results play out? Yeah, so I think we have to start with some of the market misconceptions and theories that abound when we talk about markets and elections. There's a theory out there that stocks perform better in the second half of the president's term because the sitting president, the incumbent president, tries to boost growth in order you know, uh, to improve chances of re-election. There are also theories out there that associate one party or another with better stock market returns. But here's the bottom line. There is not a very clear connection between the composition of Congress and the occupant of the Oval Office uh, regarding the performance of either stocks or bonds. Uh, you can you can play around with these numbers depending on which time series you want to use, and I've seen that happen a lot with commentators, you know, who may say, hey, since 1960, this has happened, or since 1948, this has happened. The point is, it's the, the numbers are too malleable. Uh, and that connection, that nexus between politics and, and markets really isn't as tight. Uh, we do know that they can, markets post-war do trend to trade a little sideways in the run-up to election due to greater policy uncertainty. But I'd emphasize the sample size is just really pretty small. And I would argue that macroeconomic backdrops always matter. And in this cycle, it's going to be all about the Fed and the monetary policy the Fed's going to pursue. Uh, investors today are not really looking to D.C. for the kind of fiscal support they were two, we- two years ago. Um, so it's really all about the Fed. Um, you know, it's our base cases for a divided Congress that limits policy moves because of greater lock, uh, kind of gridlock. Um, we think that there are certain themes that will play out, um, and those are uh, sec- you know, national security, um, resilience, green tech. Um, in, in the report we published this morning, we have those identified. Um, and I think from the perspective of what we would like to see on an upward trajectory in spending is things for conventional defense uh, stocks. Uh, other other aspects of security, things like cybersecurity, semiconductors, and even food and energy, which is, of course, becoming a much more uh, of an issue related to national security because of geopolitics. And I will point out again to our listeners, our clients, if you want to read further into those thematic sector implications, the Election Watch publication, again, available on UBS.com forward slash Election Watch. You brought up the Fed a few moments ago, and as you pointed out, the Fed has been quite influential to how markets sentiment here in 2022 has evolved. Do you expect the midterms to influence the Fed's policy course in any way? Absolutely not. Uh, the message from the Fed is very clear. It will continue to keep raising rates until inflation is under control. Uh, the approaching election is not going to change that. Uh, it, it's interesting, contrary to popular belief, the Fed really does not 
really um, integrate the prospects of an election in pursuing monetary policy. It does operate independently. It does not allow pending elections to influence its own monetary policy. Um, We looked at this actually pretty carefully because, again, it's it's, it's a common perception that the Fed is perhaps going to ease in front of of a presidential election or ease in front of a midterm election in order to basically skew the results. Um, There... The Fed may not love the idea of either tightening or loosening policy right in front of an election, but history shows that they do so on a regular basis, and it it is not necessarily correlated with one party or another. So in 11 out of the past 12 presidential cycles, for example, the Fed has adjusted policy either to limit inflation or to stimulate economic growth, and it was really dependent upon the economic conditions at the time. So uh, it's it's not likely to put monetary policy on hold for political reasons, and we do expect the Fed to continue to tighten over the course of the next few months. Thank you, Tom, for the clarity there. Anything in the way of guidance, Tom, for investors, our clients listening in, concerned about investing amid the political uncertainty of an election year? Yeah, there's actually one, I think, really important takeaway. All too often, investors let their political biases direct their investments. And this rarely turns out to be a positive endeavor. Um, There is a number of very good studies that show that investors adopt a more pessimistic view of markets if the party of their choice, um, you know, doesn't win a presidential election or doesn't win uh, a lot of seats in the midterm elections or their preferred presidential candidate loses. When that happens, uh, the, their adherence, that is the political party's adherence, the, the registered voters in that particular party tend to take this pessimistic view. And what's fascinating about this is that even professional investors and portfolio managers fall victim to this the same behavioral oddity. And what, what shows is that it's whether or not it's a private client, whether or not it's a portfolio manager who does this for a living, there is this tendency to basically let your emotions, based on what happens in the election, dictate what you do with your portfolio. So, for for example, Democrats were more pessimistic than Republicans after the 2016 election. They invested less in the markets. Then global markets rallied 26% in the year following Election Day. And they were not as invested as Republicans. The same thing happened in 2008 or earlier in 2008 when former President Obama was elected. Investors aligned with the general, uh, the uh, Republicans, the GOP, tended to, to miss out on the early part of the recovery, which you may recall started in the second week of March of 09. So our advice is do your best to keep your political views out of your portfolio to separate the political rhetoric from economic reality, to remember that most policy proposals do not come to fruition, at least in the manner that they're proposed on a campaign platform. Uh, And if we're correct that a divided Congress is now the most likely outcome, the legislation that does pass will have to have some degree of bipartisan support. And actually, that's kind of a comforting thought in the sense that if we can basically find a place in the middle uh, in order to pass some legislation, then that legislation may be a bit more thoughtful and, as a consequence, uh, may kind of uh, subdue some of the concerns that uh, investors naturally have about their political beliefs. So, again, try to 
try to separate your political biases from your investment strategies, I think is a really good takeaway. Well, some valuable guidance there, Tom, to have reinforced the close at our conversation for today. And thank you again for dropping by top of the morning to walk our listeners, our clients through the latest edition of Election Watch and get an ongoing publication series as we're heading towards November very quickly. The latest edition is available again up on UBS.com forward slash Election Watch. Tom, looking forward to having you back in the coming months for some follow-up conversations. I look forward to it as well, Dan. Have a good one. Thank you, Tom. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the global wealth management business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.